Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. If you could trade a bench warmer for the greatest of all time, you'd do it, right? Get your business a game-changing pickup by choosing the commerce platform with the internet's best converting checkout. That's Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you're covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you possibly need to take control and take your business to that very next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. squad and welcome to ranks fc it's your favorite football podcast back 
for another week. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. Joining me is our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. How you doing, mate? Yeah, very good, mate. Yeah, taking to an international guru for today, um, which is fitting because we just had an international break and I even went to watch an international football match. So that seems quite fitting. The less said about England v Malta, the better. But I did manage to take my son to his first England game. So there was some good that came out of it. Uh, from an England point of view, that's about, we'll, we'll leave it there, I think. But there's some good storylines, mate, happening across the world of international football and two massive tournaments on the horizon. Yeah, and next summer we have a Copa America and we have European Championships. The Euro is going to be hosted in Germany. The Copa going to be hosted in the US, who thankfully actually qualified for a tournament they are hosting after seeing off, not without some trouble, Trinidad and Tobago across two legs. We're going to get to the Copa in part two. In part one, Dean's going to rank his top five favourites, early favourites, for next summer's tournament. And then I'm going to flip the script and do the same with the copper in part two. And then in part three, we've got some hot takes that we're going to address as well. So loads to get through today. I'm going to get stuck into it, DJ. And it's been an interesting international break. There's been lots of storylines, lots of narratives, lots of minnows that came close. We saw Kazakhstan and Moldova fail last night. We're recording this on Tuesday to qualify for their first ever European Championships. They had tricky tasks. They both had to go away from home to the team above them in the group and get a victory, but neither were able to manage that. So we're not going to see those two newbies in Germany next summer. But we're going to talk about the teams who have, well, big eyes on actually claiming the throne. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, we'll see uh, once we get closer to Euro 2024 exactly how this all pans out. But as we're looking at it right now, I've kind of cast my eyes across all the teams that have qualified so far, narrowed it all down and come up with the top five of potential candidates to go on and lift a trophy. Of course, Italy are the holders of the Euros right now. They saw off England um, on penalty kicks. Very sadly. Uh, and they saw off Ukraine on, on a non-given penalty kick <laughs> very late on in their yeah. qualifier to actually book their spot, which was interesting, shall we say. They have sneaked into this ver- this latest version of the Euros, yeah, with a, a very, very, I'm going to say lucky, yeah, probably, uh, lucky moment at the end of their match against Ukraine. I mean, Italy still would have been in the playoffs and they probably still would have qualified. We said that um, in the World Cup and they didn't. They were the <laughs> that's be- true. It's probably worth pointing out that they were the better side against Ukraine, but they were lucky not to have a penalty awarded against them in the 93rd minute. So, very strange, yeah. In the times of VAR, it's very rare that you get away with a moment like that on Michaela Mudrick, but maybe it was because it was Michaela Mudrick that he didn't get it. I don't know. Um, Italy are not making my top five favourites for the Euros. That doesn't mean they won't win it um, because that's they weren't favourites to win the last one either. Um, but let's see whether they can prove themselves to be a tournament team once we're at the tournament. I'm going to start at five um, with the hosts, Germany. Now, I'll be honest here. I don't actually think Germany, as we can see it right now, have got a hope in hell of actually winning this tournament. I'm struggling to actually back them to do this, but they are on home soil. They're due a win, but they are a bit rubbish. Um, Their results over the course of of the year have been pretty poor, but they've changed manager. Uh, They've got Julian Nagelsmann in charge at the moment, which does give them... um, more hope. Um, Yogi Love has obviously had made way for 
for Hansi Flick, but his tenure was uh, not very long. And now German fans are hoping that the Nagelsmann appointment sparks um, some new life into this this German squad. And um, we'll see whether that turns out to be the case, but they've obviously got some amazing talent and he just needs to kind of bring it all together. Um, Germany have won this tournament before. They haven't won it since 1996 um, when it was held in England. Um, but there will be a certain level of expectation in Germany that they can actually go on and do this. Now, whether they can find the goal power and these sorts of things remains up in the air. I mean, if you look at their their team makeup and see that Kai Havertz played at left back and uh, their latest match against Turkey, which they lost 3-2, um, you can see that this team is still being built, um, definitely still under construction. But you also have to remember that this is a team that has just Stegen in goal. Um, it has some very solid defensive options and uh, Rudiger and, and Tarr. And uh, even if you start digging into the depths of that defence, um, they, they've got options in and around them, both experienced and young. And you start to move up the pitch and you're like, okay, well, in midfield, you've got the likes of Kimmich. If he can come back into form again, then that's a fantastic player to have. You've got Gundogan and Goretzka. You've got Jamal Musiala. Like You've got one of the best young players in the world. And in terms of creativity, you've got Wirtz, you've got Gnabry, you've got Sané. And then you just need that goal scorer, whether it's Thomas Muller or Fulkrug or whoever, can end up actually getting them to well, be contenders problem, to win a trophy. Yeah, that's the problem. I don't think that they've got the goals in this team to even... To well, be honest, a, they it's might a not... problem, actually. There's actually quite a lot of them. They've got yeah, there's a problem, back. yeah. They've yeah. got problems at number six. We've, talked, we've seen, you know, Nagelsmann come out and say that Gundogan is the man that he needs to build around in the midfield, which means that it's going to be a fight between, what, Kimmich and Goretzka and even Pascal Gross for that second spot none of whom are potentially the natural six that you'd want to play alongside a Gundogan. There are question marks quite quite a lot, but I, I do think that in terms of who you're looking at up top, none of the options right now guarantee goals. No, they definitely don't. Um, and, that, and that's going to be the big problem for them. So honestly, like they're lucky to be in this list. Uh, I am putting them in at five because I don't feel that there are five really good candidates to say that can actually go and win the Euros as a stand right now. Like, I think that you could probably make a case for the Netherlands to have been included here, but I don't think Netherlands have also are been unconvincing, to be perfectly honest with you. And to quote Gary Lineker, right? Football's a simple game. 22 yeah. men chase a ball for 90 minutes and at the end, the Germans always win. It does feel like that is no longer the case. And we are in this weird era where Germany have had the same kind of coaching tree for a long time and and actually you go back to Yogi Love and, and what that meant and then Hansi Flick who was his assistant it, it feels like they are coming out of a cycle which was obviously a successful cycle they won that world cup back a decade ago now but it feels like they've been within that kind of era for some time and yet you look at it and go okay what does this look like in real terms the question it becomes, what do they look like right now? And right now they look rubbish, but can Nagelsmann turn that around? If there's someone that I think probably has the tactical nous to do that, Nagelsmann's right up there. 
Yeah, exactly. That's why you can't rule Italy out either, right? Because whilst they've not been particularly convincing, the more time Spalletti gets with his side, the less I can rule Italy out of actually being a force when it comes to actually kick off next summer. Yeah, and I think that's it. And and honestly, I'd probably put Germany and Italy into this same bracket as like, who knows? Like they've got the pedigree to do it. They've got individuals that can produce magic. They've got some emerging players that could do things uh, that are interesting. But I don't think if we're going to rank here favourites for a tournament, beyond the fact that Germany are playing this tournament at home, which, yeah, does definitely give you something extra. um, I'm not sure it's enough extra to, to really propel them into the higher reaches of of this ranking um that leads me up to number four and at four i've put spain um who i think are are an interesting proposition for this um obviously if you um don't watch loads of international football and you're like well i watched the world cup and spain didn't seem too good to me they they squeezed through their group and then they were beating in the round of 16 by morocco um and you and you'd be fair that like that that's absolutely fair on penalties think, to be fair but on penalties but i think we saw that the again we talk about the lack of goals apart from the fact that they won their first game at the world cup 7-0 like goals did goals were hard to come by in that team um as they got through it but then obviously spain went on and they they won the nations league and they beat croatia um in the summer and we're in a moment now where i think we're seeing a version of a spain team that we we want to see, I think. Like typically, I think we've all grown up in a time when the Xavi and Iniesta uh, movement was kind of ingrained in us. Like we knew how Spain played, we knew that they were going to get through tough spells, and we saw them win the Euros in two thousand and eight and two thousand and twelve, and it felt like they owned football in that time. Well, they did. and <laughs> they did. <laughs> That's because they did. Um, but now we're looking at kind of a different version of Spain, I think. Um, the coach is uh, Luis de la Fuente, and he obviously has a very good handle on the players that are emerging in the Spanish unit because he's managed a lot of them at the youngest age groups. And the first thing you look at when you're talking about the Spain team is, if available, their midfield would be Rodri, Pedri, Gavi, right? So that would be pretty much the best midfield you could hope for. Now, Obviously, this week, there's been bad news for Gavi. He's um, injured his knee. And we don't know by the time we get to the Euros what his condition will be. I don't really want to speculate around that. But as it looks right now... It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. Um, So Spain are going to have to um, make up for that. And I think that that is a big loss. I mean, in that game, for example, uh, we had Sunset ended up coming in for him. And they've got some depth, but it's certainly not going to be to the level of Gavi. But um, in terms of the rest of the team makeup, they got some really good players. Uh, I think Unai Simon is a, is a very solid goalkeeper. Um, Americ Laporte in defence. Pau Torres, they've got to call upon. You go Martinez. They've got a decent depth pool when it comes to defenders. I'm not saying they're the best they've ever had, but I think that they, that it's good. It's, and in it's, attack, it's, quite, it's quietly very strong. I think. It's quietly it, strong. Yeah, it, I think it that, is, that's it. You I think play a little bit, a little bit lightweight would be my my only kind of question mark over it. And a lot of these defenders are very good ball players. They're you know very competent in terms of possession, but actually when it's put up against them, we saw Spain struggle with someone like Yusuf Siri. There are those issues that you can dig into, but I think that in terms of depth, there they're in 
a relatively good place as, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, you have to talk about players like someone like Danny Carvajal, who's having this comeback season and been absolutely sensational for Real Madrid. And Alex Grimaldo, who's flying for Bayer Leverkusen, has finally got the call-ups he's been deserved for a long, long time, I think. Mm. Someone like Jose Gaia, who's part of this resurgent Valencia side. There's a lot to like, I think, about some of this defensive unit. But question marks remain about whether they are physically capable at top-level football in terms of the World Cup, which is, or, or the European Championships, which will be physical. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the main source of goals, it will still be Alvaro Morata, who will be viewed upon to, to deliver. Um, around who him, is flying. For he's, doing, he's having a good time. He's having a very good time of things. You've got Lamine Yamal, who's like the bright young thing in, in European football, like 16 years old. I'm not sure like we should or often would be pinning too much on one player, but... His breakthrough is so sensational that it's not beyond him to literally take this tournament in his hands and help steer Spain to glory. He is capable of that. Let's try to temper expectations. Um, Easy for most of us to do because we're not Spanish, but uh, let's see how they manage to do that in Spain. But um, De La Fuente will, will have no problems at all in giving... The medium hour call up to go to the Euros. Uh, Ferran Torres, um, Danny Olmo. We have to see who else they decide to actually call into that setup in terms of attacking options, and also who really is seen as the main backup for goals beyond Alvaro Morata. But um, I think one thing you will get from the Spanish team is, you know, since the days of uh, Xavi Iniesta, it's all been about the passing and the, the relentless passing, and it's been too much at times, and you've been unable to maintain their identity or replicate it. And I think they've come away from that a little bit now. They, they still play good football, but I feel like they've got a more of a plan B or a plan C now where they can come away from that a little if they need to. Um, it's not going to be the same style of football that, that we all uh, had ingrained in us, like I mentioned. So, yeah, I think that Spain at, at number four here, um, a, a team that you don't expect to win this tournament, but... It's starting to head in their direction again, and this is more like the Spain of old. What I really like about this Spain side is that the drop-off from sort of A team to B team isn't massive. So obviously you have different players coming in and out. There will be injuries. I think you look at some of the other sides, and look, obviously there are key parts in this in this Spain team. And you know, if Pedri isn't there, if Rodri isn't there, fine. But actually you look at the backups here, someone like Martin Zubimendi, who's been absolutely sensational, Pharrell Sociedad was on Barcelona's radar. He was apparently Xavi's number one target in central midfield. Someone like Fabian Ruiz, who has re-established himself in, in this PSG side. Mikel Marino, who's played alongside Zubimendi. You have, as you mentioned, Oihan Sanset, who's having a, another good season at Athletic Club. We haven't even mentioned the fact that Gabri Vega was part of this side and has dropped off because he's headed off to Saudi Arabia, but that doesn't change the fact that he's an incredibly talented footballer. Alex Baena... Avia Real, you've got on the wings if, if the original players aren't performing. Rodrigo Kelme is having that breakthrough season at Atletico Madrid. We've seen Brian Zaragoza called up from Granada. There's a lot of really talented footballers here. And that's without going into the kind of list of players who've been in and around this squad for a while. The likes of, as you say, Dani Olmo, but Oyadabal, who I think is a sensational footballer. And I love mm. watching. You've got someone like little Rodri at Betis, who was the star of the under-21 Euros for Spain and 
has kind of looked to move that form into La Liga this season. The drop-off, and as you say, De La Fuente's got that experience playing with the youngsters, so he knows what these players coming through can do. I think that that's a real tick in Spain's book, that the drop-off from one to another doesn't really exist. And whilst the top level might not be as clear-cut as someone like France or England, I think Spain have less to worry about when it comes to if one of those gets injured, do you have to restructure the whole thing? I don't think so. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a good point. And yeah, I think that this is a time to have eyes again on Spain. And international football is always great when you can uh, start to trust Spain again. You know you're getting a proper tournament on your hands. So yeah. I'm excited about that to have Spain in there at number four. So there we go. Germany five, Spain four. At number three, I think I've got a surprise. It's England. Oh, wow. This is where I'm, I'm putting England at three. I'm... Honestly. That's very defeatist of you. I've not seen anybody put England below two in a ranking. Because this is real. What I've done here is real. England. I don't think England are going to win the Euros. Like, wow. look, we have on paper, England can do it. In theory, England can do it. In practice, can England go on and win this tournament in Germany? And I've got real, real doubts about whether they're capable of doing that. Look, England and France at the World Cup, like there's barely anything between them, right? There's barely anything between. It comes down to very fine moments that that end up separating you. But it's those fine moments that are dictating whether England are going to have any success. And look, what Gareth Southgate's done in the duration of his time at England has been good. Like it hasn't always been exciting, but in terms of results, in terms of outcomes, like he's brought us a level of expectation. We haven't had in years, to be honest. Like, we always had hope, but did we really expect to do anything? No. And I think that he's definitely got people believing again. And like you say, that's why most people in their rankings will have England in the top two. But I've just watched the last two matches against Malta and North Macedonia, and I cannot genuinely believe that England can go on and win a tournament. And now I know that, like, it's hard to use those matches as a gauge, and I'm not just using those as a gauge. But the players seem to struggle to lift themselves. And if the player, the manager doesn't seem to be a great motivator in times of need either. And that's what concerns me. There is a mental fragility in this England team. And time after time, they have retreated into their shells at moments during Southgate's tenure when they had opportunities to go and make history and they haven't done it. They, they, they've had such good opportunities. If you think back to Croatia in 2018, England had a great opportunity there to go and win that game and they started playing within themselves. Italy in that final uh, of the last Euros in 2020, they were, they were er- ahead early in that game. Fantastic opportunity to go and win it. Should have won it. Played within themselves. And France at the World Cup, They retreated again and played within themselves. They were all very winnable games. England could, honestly, England could have won all three of those tournaments and they didn't. And I just don't see them breaking that trend. The only way they do is because of Jude Bellingham, Harry Kane, Declan Rice, John Stones, the core of that team. That's a pretty good core. (laughs) <laughs> what happens though the second you take one of them out of that team 
Yeah, yeah. They're, right. they're, they're not replaced. And you've seen that. Jude Bellingham not being with England for this, for this uh, particular international window. England have just lacked ideas and spark and drive. And I've even seen people writing today like Bellingham is as important as Kane is for England now. I'm not sure that's strictly true when you give look at Kane's goal-scoring record, but I understand the principle that is being made. And the chances are we do have a serious injury and someone will be missing from this squad. And if that's happened, if it is a Stones or Rice or Bellingham or Kane, I just don't think we can play at the same levels. And I think that that will affect England. Look, I'll be honest. I am trying to temper expectations. I want us to have a talking point here. I don't, I don't want England to be considered for favourites for a major tournament because I don't think they've lived up to that expectation. I think that this team has done brilliantly at times. I think that they've uh, progressed like across the board at all levels over the past ten years. No, no, there's, there's no doubt about that. But when it comes to imposing yourselves on a big game, when it comes to showing what your identity is, when it comes to showing character it always feels like we revert to type and I'd love to believe that people like Jude Bellingham could take us beyond that but I won't believe it until I see it and this mental barrier that continues to exist I fear will hold England back when we get to the Euros. Mm. Some would call you a doubting Thomas but I I, I think there is I love England. I want us saying. to go and win this tournament. And I've been, you know, I go to games. And I went to the Euros when we got there. And I've, if things start going well, I'll be as optimistic, more optimistic than anyone. But for the sake of this ranking, like trying to look at it logically, I feel that there are two teams that you can believe in more than England. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. I think that also, you know, on your point there about this international break, I think you do look at France and that game against Gibraltar. Now they're not the same, the England Malta game and the France Gibraltar games. The the difference between Malta and Gibraltar is 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 pretty stark. But you also look at the players that France had missing in that game, the fact that there was no Camavinga, no Chuameni in the midfield. You look at the centre back partnership of Tadebo and Upamecano. Do you think that's going to be France's starting partnership at the Euros? I don't. You look at Marcus Turam through the middle, brilliant footballer having an incredible season for Inter. I still think Giroud gets the nod when it comes to the Euros. And they win that game 14-0. And yes, there were circumstances in that, in that obviously there was an own goal and a red card early on for Gibraltar and, and France. But the way that France put the pedal to the floor and went, yeah, we are going to just prove a point. We are going to go and smash records. We are going to go and entertain our fans at home is a very different game and a very different team to what we saw from England taking you know that similar lead against Malta and not being able to kind of kick through onto it so yeah I, I absolutely appreciate what you're saying I, I think that there is an element of defeatism in there and I agree with you that obviously if there is players missing in this England setup especially key players and things are going to be difficult and um, without Bellingham and Stones in there then obviously you can look at this international break and go well two of the four you've just mentioned are missing if they are all there, then what's to stopping them? And I think the answer is, well, maybe France. But <laughs> aside from that, I don't think there's many yeah. sides that can stack up to a full-strength England. But kind of in the opposite of what I just said about Spain, I think the drop-off to the B team, if you will, is far more stark yeah. for an, from an England perspective. 
and that's a worry at this point. Yeah, I think that, and I think that's a good point. Um, of course, a full strength England can go toe to toe with the best. Yes, they can. But what we've seen is they still come up short, and that's something we have to see them overcome. So the team at number two that I've put above them is Portugal. I thought you might do this. And look, I'll be honest. In terms of trust, the I, I don't. I, it's, it's difficult to say I can trust Portugal much more than I actually trust England. But let's just put it into context for a minute. We'll dress around it, and then I know that you all have a big say on this because you watch a lot of this team. But Portugal ended their qualification campaign with ten wins out of ten. Yeah. Um, Bruno Fernandes like has been uh, inspirational in a lot of a lot of ways. Um, since Roberto Martinez came into this job, Portugal have won every match. Um, they've they conceded looked, twice in 10 yeah, games. <laughs> defensively, they've been great. They've been scoring goals and they've been winning. So when you get to analysing the squad is when I get to thinking, actually, I think I could trust these guys more than I can trust England. They've got more recent pedigree. They won the Euros in 2016. Um and I think you could probably say that that was a team which, yeah, they won the tournament, but that that side that they actually end up winning the Euros with isn't the best side that they've had in years, is it? Like, this well, team is better. No, this, this team is, is better than the side that they have then. I think that um, Portugal, a lot of blame would be laid with the, the past manager on why they didn't live up to expectations. And I think that Roberto Martinez has started to shake off um, those shackles a little bit. I'll be honest, I've still got doubts about whether Roberto Martinez can do it because he didn't manage to take Belgium's golden generation to the heights that they were supposed to hit. But honestly, when you look at Portugal's squad, it is stacked. You look across the back line and you're, you're talking about like players like Gonzalo Inacio, uh, Ruben Diaz, Antonio Silva... You've still got Pepe to call on. I uh, believe he's still going to keep going and, and into, into the next year um, as an option if you wanted to go there. I'm not saying he will be your first choice, but you've got that level of experience to call upon. He'll be 41 at the Euros. Do you, <laughs> do you back against him getting a minute? I, I don't. I reckon he'll get no. a minute. You move forward and you've got Jao Pelinia, you've got Neves, you've got uh, Bernardo Silva, you've got Vitinha, you've got uh, Bruno Fernandes. And then in the front line, Rafael Liao, Diogo Jota, Cristiano Ronaldo, João Felix, Pedro Neto, Gonzalo Ramos. I've even forgotten some. Like, this team is so good in pretty much every area. I'm not sure what their weakest spot is, to be honest. Maybe fullback? Maybe. Yeah, but even then, actually, this this international break, I think, has shown some weakness there in that Cancelo um, was kind of supposed to play both sides. They had to call up Totti Gomes, who's played... You know, a fair bit now for Wolves and has, has worked him way up in. Raf Guerrero came back in to replace Nelson Semedo. And actually, when you look at that at full strength, Nuno Mensch, who's obviously an absolutely sensational fullback, and Joao Cancelo are a brilliant first choice fullback pairing. Behind them, Diogo Dalot's not having a brilliant time at Manchester United at the moment, but he has been pretty good when Portugal have called upon him. Guerrero hasn't featured all that much for Munich yet but when you're talking about someone who's shown his pedigree on the highest level I think you can back that Joao Mario has been excellent for Porto for for a long time and is starting to really show the caliber 
you know, that he was expected of when he was a youngster breaking through and everyone was like, who's this kid? Um, and then I think in the middle, you're looking at Antonio Silva, one of the best young fullbacks in the world, Kuhn Diash, one of the best fullbacks in the world, Gonzalo Inacio, still not completely convinced he can play in a back four as opposed to a back three because he spent so long at Sporting under Amorim playing in that back three system. But what we've seen of him so far at this level has been very impressive. Now, you do have to caveat that Portugal's qualification group was pretty weak. The you know the side expected to challenge or, or the most traditional of the last sort of decade side that would challenge them would have been Bosnia and Herzegovina. Iceland obviously had their moment a couple of years back, but have really regressed since then. Luxembourg are getting better, but still miles off what you'd expect from them. And it was Slovakia who kind of turned it up and actually were the second best side in this group. Portugal beat them twice, but they beat them by narrow margins on both occasions. One nil away from home, three two at home, although they were three one up and quite comfortable until Savaki scored an absolute screamer. So, you know, questions where questions on, on how that much affected it. But yes, I mean what we've seen so far has been sensational. They've been free flowing, they've been free scoring. We've seen Martinez able to actually get the best out of Cristiano Ronaldo again and not just utilizing him as a lump the ball in there and hope for the best. It's starting to actually, you know, coach those attacking patterns into this Portugal side. If they can click there's nothing stopping them because as a talent pool, I mean, they're, they're up there with France and England in terms of what, you know, the amount of world-class players that you can look at this team and go, yeah, 100%, 100% and kind of across the board, as you mentioned. Yeah. And I think having Xiao Felix and Raphael playing at such high level at the moment um, is going to be a massive positive. And then it's up to the manager to decide when Ronaldo starts and when Gonzalo Ramos gets his opportunities. Or if um, he just starts them together, as he's done for the last couple of games. Yeah, and how you manage to balance that out at a tournament, I think, could be could be more difficult, especially once you get into the um, the knockout matches. But yeah, Ronaldo at 39 years old by the time he gets to this tournament. We saw Messi go and win the last World Cup. Could Ronaldo uh, follow that up by getting his own hands on an international trophy? Um, big, big, big summer for the rivalry if they both go on it's and win it could be a big trophies. summer for the rivalry <laughs> mate yeah, it could yeah, be yeah, yeah. it really could uh, but yeah let's just go and finish off this list shall we at number one because we all knew what was coming the moment we started this ranking France are the best international football team out there um, they're the best side on paper and they're also the best side on a football pitch um, I was considering when I was weighing them up against England for example uh, how they fared in all the positions. And I was like, look, France are better than everyone in every area apart from maybe maybe England have got the edge as a striker. Maybe, maybe Kane would would make an argument at striker. And there's not really a right back maybe that, that jumps out at me as like, okay, and no one's going to be better than him. But this is a, a squad that is young, insane depth in, every, in pretty much every position. Um, they're going to be the side to beat. Um, apart from a, a narrow loss to uh, Germany, they've won all of their games this year. Uh, they are playing Greece tonight, so I should caveat that. But as you say, their last game was 14-0. That's just a ruthless edge that they've got to them. They were 7-0 up at half-time, um, up against one of the worst teams in the world. Most teams would have eased off, made changes, thought just leave it at that. France decided to go and double it. Um, and Mbappe bags a hat-trick. 
Giroud scores and uh, an injury time overhead kick. They are not messing around this team. They've got an unbelievable blend of talent. Just to put into context how strong their squad is, for this international break that we're in right now, their squad did not include Kamavinga, Chuameni, Nkunku, Musa Diaby, Ferlan Mendy, Ibrahim Kenyate, Benjamin Pavard, or Presnel Kimpembe. None of those were in this squad. So that's the strength that they've still got to call on. Yet they did still call upon Zaire Emery, Yusuf Fafana, Kefrem Turam, Rabio. They've got Tadibo in defence with Saliba, uh, Lucas and Teo Hernandez. And then up front, up front is it's ridiculous. It's an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? This is just like, honestly, Griezmann, Mbappe, Giroud, Usman Dembele, Kolo Moani, Marcus Turam and Kingsley Coman. That's currently their forward options. Add on to that the fact that they've got a manager like Didier Deschamps who's been in the job since 2012 and has that, I don't know, that next level that Gareth Southgate and Roberto Martinez haven't proved that they've got. France France surely go on and win this tournament. I mean, barring a miracle, I think you're right. There's like no flaws. I think it's probably how I would put this in, in this squad. There's no position, even you say, you know, right back there. I'm looking at it and going, well, I really like Jonathan Klaus, but even if you don't, Kunde's played there at times. He's been good for Barcelona when he's played there. He doesn't really enjoy it, but I think if it was an option of not playing for France or playing at right back, he'd probably yeah. play at right back. Got Malagusto, who's moved to Chelsea, proved an adequate backup for Reese James, who's right up there with, you know, the best players in the world. Benjamin Pavar, again, someone who doesn't hugely like playing right back, but will definitely do a job there if it comes to it. That's not, you know, it, there's so many teams in the world that would kill for those options at right back. And France, they're like, mm, not sure that might be our weakest position, actually. It's it's yeah. ridiculous how deep yeah. this squad is. The midfield, how, I, th- I honestly think that the most interesting thing about France is how they're going to whittle this squad down to 23. Because you're talking about someone like Bubakar Kamara, who's been sensational at Aston Villa. Yusuf Fafana, who's been there in this international break as well, who's had a couple of very, very good seasons at Monaco. Zaire Emery got injured in this international break. He always takes Adrian Rabio. Then there's Kefren Turam, who's been exceptional at Nice and is seen as one of the better players coming through in his position in the world. Then Kamavinga and Chiuameni. Genduzi has got a new lease of life at Lazio. It's just incredibly deep. This is two positions, bear in mind, because we know that Griezmann's probably going to play in that kind of 10 role where you know he, he's exceptional. And as I said last week, I think right now on form, Griezmann's probably the best player in the world. So I just can't see any weaknesses. And look, they lost in the last European Championships to Switzerland on penalties after being in complete cruise control. But their transition from that World Cup winning squad of 2018 to what we're looking at now, bear in mind, none of that midfield three will be at this tournament. Gola Kante, Paul Pogba and Blaise Matuidi. None of them will be here. And we're talking about this being the deepest midfield in world football. It's ludicrous. The amount of talent in this squad, if they don't win the European Championships, something has gone drastically wrong. Yeah, maybe they have an in-house fight again or something. Maybe maybe it takes something like that. The only that, thing but... that can stop France is France. Oh, and it's always, it's usually the case. We usually say this. Um, look, when it comes up to it, like they, they go to the World Cup, they make it through to the final. And... 
they end they up lose losing. on penalties. Like they lose <laughs> on penalties, and it's it's a messy final that is really written in the stars. Like there's that that's what it's going to take for them to not win. I think it's either an in-house crisis or destiny, an element of luck. Yeah, destiny. Okay, all right. Well, I think we'll leave it there for the Euros. Now we'll move on after the break to the Copper America. Don't go anywhere. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where we're leaving Europe behind and heading across the Atlantic Ocean. Next summer's Copper America will be held in the United States. Two venues were announced this week. The opening game is going to be held at Atlanta United's Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And then the final is going to be in Miami, which is going to be interesting at the Hard Rock. If Argentina and Lionel Messi get there, then he's going to be playing... Well, close, should we say, to home turf, home of the Miami Dolphins, of course. But we'll go through a quick top five from this one as well. And it's worth pointing out that the Copa America is the 10 teams from Commonwealth, Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay and Venezuela. And then it's going to be six qualifiers from CONCACAF. It's done as a kind of joint tournament between South America and North America. The only two teams that have officially qualified at the time of recording from CONCACAF are Panama and the United States. Canada are 2-1 up against Jamaica in their semi-final or in their quarter-final. Um, and then Mexico are 2-0 down to Honduras in there. So they play tonight as we record this, by the time you listen to this, those two places will be decided, but that's okay because neither of those sides are getting anywhere near the top five as we look at it. And there's play-in rounds. So Mexico, if they can't overturn that deficit, might have to go through that extra way. So we'll see what this looks like from the perspective of the last CONCACAF teams. But as you might expect, four of this top five are from Commonwealth. I'm going to start in CONCACAF though at number five, where I am going to put the USMNT. Now, this seems like a pretty weird time to be putting the US as fifth favourites, considering they lost last night to Trinidad and Tobago. But I think there were some serious caveats in that game that probably need you know, to be addressed. Mm. So Junior Dest had an absolute meltdown. Uh, the US were 1-0 up. He'd provided an assist, and everything seemed to be going pretty smoothly. And then he didn't get a series of relatively minor decisions down the right flank. He didn't get a foul that he wanted. He gave a foul away that probably was a foul that he was very unhappy about. And then he went to keep the ball in play, thought he'd done so. And the linesman called the ballers out. And Dest completely and utterly 
lost the plot. Like it was, if you haven't seen this, go and look it up. It's genuinely one of the most bizarre things I've seen on a football pitch. He is being trying to be shepherded away by his teammates. Referee books him. He blows the ref an imaginary kiss. He gets booked again and sent off. He is carried away by like his teammates. He's livid. He's screaming in Tim Ream's face. Who's like, what is going on? Matt Turner sort of like pushes him away to be like, get away from the ref. He appears to say, don't push me to Matt Turner. And eventually he's, he's off the pitch there. Joe Scally comes on to replace him. Gio Reyna is withdrawn and the US concede twice. Once straight after the red card uh, and the second in the second half. And it looked for a second like it was all going to be a little bit edgy, but they actually saw it out relatively comfortably in the end. But all that aside, and, you know, after the game, Tim Ream was like, he's let everyone down. He's let the players on the bench down who were going to get minutes and, and going to get an opportunity to show their ability. He's let the team down. And Dest has come out with a full apology and be like, I, I, I can't be doing that. But the reaction on social media was pretty vociferous. There was a lot of US fans being like, he shouldn't, shouldn't suit up for us again. And I was like, whoa, okay, whoa. Let's hold our horses a bit because Serginio Dest has been really, really good for PSV this season. Now, obviously, you can't behave like that. And what he did was bad. And it did let the rest of his team down. And there would have been players on that bench who would have been looking for their opportunity to show what they could do, unable to do so because the US had to completely switch systems after the red card and therefore kind of took away from that opportunity for players to show their ability to Bahalta ahead of this tournament. And I think that's a really sad thing. But with all that said, I think that the core of this US squad is starting to take real shape. And there are question marks. There's some very interesting articles published. There was a good one this morning on The Athletic about who's kind of the lock positions and, and what the what the gaps look like right now. But I actually don't think it's as bad as people are making out. Matt Turner has pretty much secured the number one shirt. His, the second goal last night was completely his fault. It was a really bad effort, but he has been good, I think, for Nottingham Forest. And he has generally shown that he is able to step up to that role of first-team goalkeeper. Gargas Lenina's out in Belgium at Upen playing week in, week out, which I think is a great thing for a 19-year-old goalkeeper. On the flanks, Dest will keep that right-back shirt if he's available because he is the best that the US have to offer. Anthony Robinson's got two goals in two for the US, which is pretty remarkable, to be honest, right now. But he's very much... Uh, a cultured figure in this side now. And then one of the kind of staples of it, if Tim Ream continues to play week in, week out for Fulham, he will start at left centre-back. And then on the right, there's Cameron Carter-Vickers, there's Chris Richards, Miles Robinson's had another good season at Atlanta. It all just feels quite calm. And there's been some interesting players brought through as options. You move into the midfield, Eunice Musa, we know all about his ability, but Tyler Adams is yet to come back. Weston McKennie didn't play in this game. He left the squad ahead of this one. But when those three are available, two of them at the very least are going to be playing in pretty much every game. Luca De La Torre still playing for Celta week in, week out and, and playing in La Liga. And then it gives you the opportunity to allow someone like a Paxson Aronson, a Brendan Aronson to be the rotating pieces in this cast if they're trying to move players about. Gio Reyna might well be the number 10 now. It looks like that shift to a 4-2-3-1 from a 4-3-3 has been something that Bahalt has tried to make work. Malik Tillman can play there as well. And then up top, this battle between Flo Balogun and Ricardo Pepe for the number nine, well, not the number nine shirt, which Pepe is currently wearing, but the, the number nine position is, is a good one and gives them both hope. And then on the wings, 
Christian Pulisic, Tim Weir, and there's some interesting players knocking about. I've been really impressed with Kevin Paredes, who's started to make his mark at Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga this season as well. There's there's lots to like about the depth in this squad. And I've been quietly, quietly impressed with how they've gone about shaping this. There's still three or four positions, I think, that aren't quite set in stone. I wonder if Johnny Cardoso's move or potential move to Betis in the summer, in the January, actually puts him into a spot to be like, I'm the backup number six. But I think that what we're seeing from a variety of these players is that this, the team feels quite settled. And I think that's probably a good thing for the US going into this tournament when a lot of these teams don't quite feel like they're there yet. Yeah, I mean, they're still growing. Um, I'm not optimistic that by the time we get to um, next summer that enough of this American new identity is going to be um, obvious. I think that it's going to take longer than that um, to to grow out. But at least they've got a striker now. Um, I think that that, that has been a, a massive issue. They've got Balogun, but need to get him scoring goals, need to find out the best route to goals. Like, what's your... Um, pathway is going to be in and around the box in terms of making you carve out chances. What's your best three across the midfield? Or is it going to be a different shape from that? Like there's a few things that are being experimented with right now. Um, and obviously Bear Houters uh, still got to win over a few people among the US support. Who, I think that's uh, probably an understatement, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> still not totally forgiven him for what's gone in the past. So there are a few underlying factors here that I think are going to hold them back in being genuine contenders to actually go on and win uh, the Copa America. But, um, you know, given it's, you know, again, we talked about Germany in the last one in home soil, you have to address it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, let's move into number four. And we talked about them as dark horses in our last Patreon episode, but this is where I've put Colombia. They're now 13 unbeaten since Nesta Lorenzo took over. And I've been very impressed quietly with, with what they've been doing. There've been some, some simple wins, you know, the likes of Bolivia, the likes of Guatemala. They've had those easy ones, but also they've proved their worth, I think, in some, some very interesting games of late. And actually, when you kind of look at the 2-1 win over Brazil, a lot was made of Luis Diaz, and rightly so, scoring those two goals and the emotion and the whole thing that came around that. But actually, you look at the places they've been, they travelled to Ecuador and came out with a very credible, you know, nil-nil draw. They drew two all against a good Uruguay side who are right in the ascendancy. I really like what they've been doing. And I think the fact that there is now this nice blend of youth and experience coming through. You know, we've seen James come back in as captain and be kind of re-kind re of integrated into this side. There were question marks over whether he'd retire from international football. And actually, he's come back in and, and, and been a real leader. And that move to Sao Paulo appears to have just rejuvenated his career a little bit and definitely his international career. Behind him, I think you're looking at this kind of rock-solid midfield. Matias Uribe who was brilliant for so long for Porto. Now, obviously, Al Sad, but still very much a heart of this. Jefferson Lerma, who moved to Palace, obviously, in the summer, but has been a sensational footballer in the Premier League for, for quite some time. You know, one of those real underappreciated players who does a lot of the work that goes into the heart, making a heart of a team solid. And with those two in particular, but then, obviously, there's Jorge Carascal, who plays in, plays in Russia. It's a really strange one. He's been in Russia for quite some time now, but I really like him as a player. He's still only 25 
Um, and those three as a midfield and as an ability to kind of make things happen, they won't all play at once. I don't think here we're looking at maybe them playing this kind of four, two, three, one shape that allows Hammers the ability to, to roam in the 10. But with those rotation options in the middle, Colombia are always going to be hard to break down through the center. And then you kind of sprinkle in the talent. Luis Diaz, obviously the, the kind of poster boy for this team, but actually Sinistera, who has not been great since he's moved to Bournemouth, let's be good, but definitely has the ability to light games up in its in in a kind of in those individual moments. But I just think more than anything else, Colombia feel like a team once again. And actually what we've seen in recent weeks and the circumstances that have surrounded them, the comments from Lorenzo after these games and what it's meant to the players and why that, you know, they're all in the dressing room crying together about the emotion of it all. There's something about this Colombia side that I really like once again. And and that I think is enough to propel them right into the conversation for next summer's tournament. Yeah, look, togetherness counts for a lot. And especially if you've got a team that's growing in together in all sorts of ways already, then it, it's just going to bond them even further. And uh, anybody that watched the Colombia 2 Brazil 1 match with Luis Diaz scoring his late two goals will see what that moment meant to everybody. Obviously, his father's story is one that captured uh, the hearts of the world and like we were all like watching that story pan out and we've had an unbelievable ending to that particular chapter of it with him basically breaking down in, in the stands as, as Luis Diaz scores the winner against Brazil. Um, but the story's not over yet for Colombia and, and Luis Diaz will continue to be the talisman of this team. I mean, the way he took that match in particular into his own hands was really impressive, as, as we've talked about on, on the Patreon show. And I think that that's just a taste, really, of, of what they're truly capable of. Can they go on and win a tournament? I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a push because of the competition level. But Dark Horses is the perfect way to pitch this. And I think that uh, Colombia um, just riding those good vibes right now that, that they're building, but also knowing that this isn't just vibes. This is a very, very strong team. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's lots of good bits here. John Duran obviously playing for, for Aston Villa as well. Davinson Sanchez will get another go. Someone like Wilmar Barrios is still in the mix. Santos Borre, who had a good run in the Bundesliga. I'm not sure how much Cuadrado is going to play. Obviously, he's had a serious injury and isn't featuring very much for Inter at the moment. But it does feel like, despite the fact that they missed the last World Cup, they've been able to to really rally. And I think it's interesting they've got a friendly played in Miami in December, which is just going to allow for a little bit more experimentation with the local cast, because obviously I don't think the European players are going to be released for that for that tournament or for that game from their kind of domestic duties. So it just gives them an opportunity to, one, scout the turf a little bit, and two to just see if there's anyone who lights things up when they're given an opportunity against a, a you know a very decent Venezuela side who I was sad to miss out of this but haven't quite made the cut. Um but we'll move on and here's my shock for you. At 3 I've got Brazil. Uh yeah. I mean <laughs> you're writing off one of the best teams in football in history here mate so go on then. I'm not, I'm not writing them off. I'm saying they're third favourites. Oh, well, you're saying, they're gonna, they're, saying they're not going to get past the semi-finals, mate. That's what you're doing. Um, well, look, I mean, recent results haven't been great, right? And and I think... I thought England at three was a push. You've put Brazil there. Wow. Well, in the last two weeks, they've lost to Uruguay and Colombia. Um, and I think that 
what we're seeing from this Brazil side is a little bit of a lack of direction. And obviously, Fernando Diniz is in there at the moment, and we're not quite sure how long that's going to last. We're not sure who's going to be in charge of Brazil by the time this tournament rolls around. Is Ancelotti going to walk into the job with like no build-up ahead of a major international tournament? That seems like a massive risk. I think they're really, really lacking at fullback. And while I'm looking at this side and I'm thinking, look, lots of these players are very talented. But actually, if I told you that the Brazil midfield three a year ago was going to be Andre from Fluminense and then Bruno Guimaraes from Newcastle and Douglas Luiz from Aston Villa, you would have laughed at me. And yet, currently, that's what it looks like. And obviously, there are players here that, that step in. And whether Casemiro is going to be walking into this team by the time that that tournament comes around, we don't know. 31 now, a lot of rings in the legs there. And whether he's able to actually recapture the form that made him so excellent last season or not is going to have a, a bearing on this. Now, Lucas Paqueta might step up to be the 10 and they might switch the formation around a little bit that way. We don't know where Andre is going to be. Rumours this week that he, he's agreed a contract with Fulham whether he's going to be playing in the Premier League for the next six months and whether that has an impact in, in where he stands in this. Andre Santos is only 19, but starting to feature more and more for Forrest. And we talked about him a lot in that episode that I did with Nathan and, and what he brings to the table. But there is a question mark over what this midfield looks like. And with Neymar now ruled out for this tournament, you know, we've seen Vinicius come in and, and get injured and miss a large part. And it's been a recurring series of injuries for Vinicius that are starting to look a little bit uncomfortable. Richarlison having a fall off, a massive fall off after the World Cup that he had. Brazil are nowhere near as deep as they used to be. And I think that there are rightful question marks about where they stand in the pecking order after the performances that we've seen last season. Now, I should caveat, they play Argentina tonight. And if they beat Argentina, <laughs> then a lot of this is going to look very silly. But yeah. Whether that happens or not, that's a derby game. Rupert goes out the window if in, in many, many ways. I'm just a bit concerned that they're lacking that X factor that has propelled them to heights in the past. And I think that this Brazil side right now is quite a lot worse than where it's been for the last sort of decade. And in that last decade, it's not been, you know, it's not been a vintage Brazilian decade, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, they've got, they've got some individuals that are, are capable of some brilliance and occasionally, you know, they do all come together and it, and it's great to watch. You know, this is, this is a team we'll all want to watch at the Copper. But, um, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. They, they they like to obviously get field as many attacking options as they can to try and fill the pitch with goals. And, I mean, it's incredible the, the depth with which they can do that when you've got Martinelli, Vinicius Jr., Rodrigo, and Rafinha starting a game, and then in in reserve you've got the likes of João Pedro and Hendrik to to bring into a into a match. Um, Look, so, incredibly talented players, but stack that up against the France one we just you know we yeah. just read out, and tell me that Brazil are at their height. Yeah, no, and that's it. Like that, this is a good no, this is a very good list of players, but it's you've got to find a way to make it work, and. Yeah, I'm not convinced, like you say, that, that they'll do that. And, um, yeah, there's a chance, like I mentioned, in that Colombia game, like Brazil could easily have, have, have won that game, but they ended up losing it. And I think that that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, yeah. All right, at two, I've gone for Uruguay. Now, nice. call me a Bielsa disciple, if you will, but... You're a Bielsa disciple. I am 
so sold on what this team can do. And I just love the makeup of it for a Bielsa side. I love what what we've got here in front of it. I'm looking at this midfield of Ugarte, who was so good in the Primera and has now made a pretty good start to life with PSG. Ben Tancourt, who's coming back from an injury, but on his day, one of the best centre midfielders, I think, in, in his position in the world. And Fede Valverde, who will run and run and run and then run some more if you ask him to. And Bielsa will ask him to. And I think you kind of pair that with this nice mix of experience in the back line. Araujo coming through as one of the best central defenders in the world, paired with someone like Jose Jimenez. Ridiculous. He's 28 years old, by the way. Like <laughs> that bloke has been around forever. He's been he's been here for the entire life. You're looking at the fullbacks in terms of Varela, who's probably a little bit old now, but Vigna, who's moved off to Sassuolo, trying to restart his career. Oliveira, who's at Napoli. I think just generally, I'm looking at this team and going, everything about it screams Bielsa at me, and then Bielsa's in charge of it. All of it makes sense in a way that someone like Brazil right now don't. And I think you look at those two results, right? They've beaten Argentina in Argentina and Brazil at home in Montevideo in the last two games that they've played. This is a serious unit that need to be given all of the respect. And if they are fit and firing, and they have this core of midfield that they can utilize, I don't think anyone's getting through them. Like, I think Mm. that this side under Bielsa is about as perfect a match as you could possibly ask for. And in a time where Brazil don't have that direction in in charge of their team, right now I would trust Uruguay to win these games more than I would trust Brazil to do them. Yeah, I mean, I've been been impressed by um, you know just watching their last game and seeing how they how they took to the Bielsa philosophy and how someone like Darwin is going to benefit from that um, in his club football probably as much as his international football. And I think that the team, because of their age and the stage that they're at, this is perfect for Bielsa to get hold of them. Like in terms of what is demanded of you in a Bielsa team, as we've seen time and time again and um, the relentless running and work rate that is involved, but also the technical preciseness of what's needed in order to score a goal in this way of playing football. Uruguay have got it all. They can actually pull off this style of football. It looks like this could be a masterstroke appointment. And um, if they don't win the tournament, then they surely will come close because anything else, and you'll just be wondering what it will take because this feels like a, yeah, a golden moment for them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and right at number one, current oh, world champions, Argentina. It's very difficult to look past them. Yes, they lost to Uruguay. There were question marks about how that team and how that game played out. But, you know, up to that point, they hadn't lost since Saudi Arabia beat them in the opener at the World Cup. They hadn't conceded since the World Cup final. And taking aside the kind of, that game's a weird one in that Bielsa is obviously coming up against his homeland, a team that he used to manage. There's a lot of emotion. It's at a different stadium. It's at the Bombonera. The ground is smaller. Everything fell in Uruguay's favor. And whilst Uruguay are an excellent team, and why I've got them at two, I think that generally, if you play that game across, you know, a, a period of time and you play that game in what is going to be the copper, 
I think Argentina come out on top. So that, that that's the only the trigger I'm looking at here in that it might be, as we talked about the fact that, that this might be Lionel Messi's last tournament with Argentina. He said at the end of the World Cup that he was not going to make another World Cup. So I can imagine there being that added to the narrative. Like, oh, go, go and win another one. Let's just make sure that this legacy is secure. We talked about the fact that they'll have one eye on the European Championships and that's going to be something else and whether Portugal can can dominate over there and that might add a third layer to this. But just Argentina as a unit under Scaloni, there's been so little to dislike. The way that they play football is glorious. The depth that they have, the ability to change things up in-game, it's all just working at the moment. And Argentina are far more than the sum of their parts. And the sum of their parts is pretty good right now. Ooh. I think it's very difficult to look past them. Now, look, we could get to March and there might be key injuries to someone like Enzo, to Alexis, to Rodrigo de Pau, to Messi, to Julian Alvarez. But you look at the players stepping up into those spots. Lautaro Martinez, Paulo Dybala's back in the squad. That's nice. Angel Di Maria still here and, and flying at Benfica. Been a very, very impressive signing for them, despite them having a bad season. You look at the players stepping up into these spots. Okay, there's a little bit of a question mark at the base of midfield. If you lose someone like Alexis, can Ezequiel Palacios step up? He's been good when he's played for Leverkusen this season. Is Paredes finished? I think so, but, you know, plenty of people might disagree with me. Just generally, though, there's just a feeling about Argentina at the moment. They're riding the crest of a wave, and I think it's very difficult to look past that. Mate, so what we've just predicted is that there's a very good chance that on July the 14th, 2024, Messi and Ronaldo could be holding a lot of trophies because both the finals are on the same day. The Euros final and the Copa America tournaments come to an end on the same date uh, on other sides of the world, albeit. But can you imagine this rivalry has that twist in it too, that, that they both can go on and do that? Like this was ge- genuinely is not supposed to be a Messi-Ronaldo show at all. And this is completely not where you're heading. And I know that Portugal aren't our favourites, France are. But the fact that Portugal are there at two with Ronaldo, Argentina are there at top, and Messi's going to be playing. That's a narrative that even I'm here for, mate. Hashtag narrative FC. We're having a time. We're having a time. Right, with that, I think we'll come to an end on the Copper America rankings. We've got a last little bit for you after the break. We're going to be talking a couple of hot takes, so stick with us. Welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for a little bit of fun in part three. Dean, you've got some scorching hot takes for us. Let's hear them. I have, yeah. Um, If you're not on Patreon, then now is definitely the time because I'm going digging around Patreon at the moment. And I thought, right, if they're not bringing the hot takes to me, I'm going to go there and get the hot takes from them. Go and join our Patreon now. Uh, It's a free trial available. Uh, There's a link in the description for you to go and do that. Um, Honestly, it's great fun. And I went in there and I said, right, give me your hot takes on the Euros or Copper America And I've got a load of responses. Um, I'm going to read out a few of them that I liked and maybe a few will catch you by surprise even, Jack. Uh, The first one I'm going to go with is from Bolivar Vargas, who says, Ecuador will make it to at least the semi-finals of the Copper. 
There are a lot of very talented young yep. players coming through for Ecuador, including Moise Caicedo, Piero Hinsapi, William Pacho, Kendry Pies. This is one of the best South American academies we've seen so far in Independiente de Val. And the national team is starting to reflect that. Ecuador had one of the youngest teams at the 2022 World Cup. And I think this copper could be a breakout tournament for a lot of their young players. He says, cheers and love the pod. Well, I love the hot take, even though it was very hard for me to read half of that stuff out. Um, probably should have practiced that before reading it uh, just, just live on the pod. But um, Ecuador, they didn't get a mention in your top five, mate. But that is, there's some good uh, reasoning there. Yeah, no, they're a really talented young side. I wonder if that maybe counts against them in terms of just still being a little bit young. But generally... Actually, if you look at their qualification record so far, it's been pretty impressive. They've only lost to Argentina. They beat this Uruguay side. They were deducted three points for something quite random. They falsified documents or something, which is a bit weird. But they've, they've drawn with Colombia and Venezuela, who are both in pretty good form as well. They're definitely in the mix. And they won in La Paz as well, which is obviously the hardest place to go in international football and get a result. So... Lots to like about this Ecuador side. I think that they're, they're lots of fun. And we've seen in the youngsters that they have the ability to make things happen. Um, and look, if they, if they click and these youngsters get going, then there's absolutely no way, uh, no reason that they can't shock a few people in this tournament, I don't think. Lovely stuff. Right. We've got a take on the USMNT now from TJ Fogarty, who is one of our real, real ultras of this podcast. He says, if the USMNT don't get past the quarterfinals of the Copa America, they need to fire Greg Berhalter. The coach's numbers are heavily buoyed by winning games at home, but if he can't do it against Conmebol's best, I don't expect the US to do much better when UEFA teams get added to the mix in 2026 for the World Cup. Hosting the World Cup is a massive opportunity, and unless Berhalter can do something this tournament... They're going to waste another cycle with this stagnation. Annoying that the USSF have already said his performance in Copper America won't affect his job because it very much should. Yeah, that is. Like, you've got to be. Well, you've got to be judged on your performances at tournaments. Surely, right? like <laughs> if if this doesn't affect his job, then that's wild. Like if the US were to go out and crash and burn, then surely they'd have to have a look at this. I I struggle with putting an absolute time on it because what if they come up in the quarterfinals against Argentina? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. But when you do look at it in that kind of sense, that would probably have involved them coming second in the group. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're looking at it that kind of way, it does, it does reflect and you should be able to qualify and you should be able to get at least to the quarters. If the U S don't get out of the group, they have to have a real look at this. So I think that the idea that, performances won't be judged at the copper is wild and why the u.s decided to say that i have absolutely no idea but yeah i i mean i think that you have to you have to contextualize in terms of who they come up against but his performances should definitely be under scrutiny yes Okay, this is the last one I'm going to do from today. And it's from Michael Lewis, who is one of my favourite uh, Rank Squad listeners because he took me to a football match in San Diego once. Uh, Michael says, I'm predicting super sexy Soboslai to lead Hungary through the group stage and into the knockout rounds. 
at the Euros. I don't think Hungary as a whole is talented enough to win a knockout game. However, they will carry some momentum from their qualifying campaign and pull some upsets in the groups. And another one of our patrons, Valentin, jumped on the back of this. Uh, Valentin's usually our Bundesliga expert, but he jumps in and he says, Hungary have really taken football to another level in this decade. Their impressive showing in the group of death last Euros in 2021 and their incredible showing in the Nation Leagues um, have shown a real domination. There are a few other UEFA countries who have been this consistently great over the last three competitive duties that they've carried out. But he says, yeah, the tournament track record is not there, but the confidence and the team spirit is. And if they get lucky with opponents, Hungary could massively exceed expectations. Yeah, 100%. I think this is a really good shout. And actually, the way that they're bouncing through at the moment is is really interesting. They've got some really intriguing players. Obviously, Sobersly is the one that tends to grab the headlines. But Milos Kerkes, who came in to Bournemouth this summer um, from the Eredivisie, is, is a really, really good left back. And he plays left wing back for Hungary and is allowed to just maraud forward more than he is for his club side. And I really, really like it. I think that this side maybe lacks the kind of star power you'd expect in in the in the forward line but the yeah. way that they're working with Sobosly on that kind of left-hand side drifting in and making things happen we saw Roland Saloy score one of the best goals of the tournament so far he's been brilliant for Freiburg for a couple of years now and he's you know just one of those players that you really enjoy watching has the ability to make things happen out of nowhere they're a really well-balanced side under Rossi. And I think that what we've seen from them, the way that they dispatched Serbia in that group, it wasn't an easy qualifying group, I don't think, by by any stretch of the imagination. And they were able to, to fight their way through it and make things happen. I really like this Hungary side. Obviously, it all depends on who they get drawn against, etc. And the fact that they're probably going to be pot C doesn't help them in that regard but they're going to be a nightmare to play against for a lot of teams. And we saw that. We've seen that in the last couple of tournaments. I really like them, and I'm really enjoying watching this kind of restoration of Magyar pride in this Hungary side. Amazing, amazing. So thanks for people for getting in touch with those. There's loads more on there. So if you do want to have a dig through some more hot takes from the Rank Squad, then they're all in the thread on there on the Patreon feed. Maybe we'll feed. discuss That's a lovely. few more on, uh, on Thursday's Patreon episodes. We should do, actually, mate. We easily could do that. There you yeah. go. There you go. There's a there, there's something to join the Patreon for. We'll look through the rest of those hot takes on Thursday. But for now, all that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much to Mr. Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. I've been Jack Collins. This has been Ranks FC looking at the favourites, the early favourites for the Copper America and European Championships next summer. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll see you very shortly, gang. Take it easy. Peace. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, Get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, 
Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.